Oftentimes we want simple answers to complex problems and anxiety is a complex problem that very rarely has one cause. And so it's gonna take a complex series of things where you look at what's going on biologically for that child, where you look at what's going on psychologically for them, what's going on socially for them, what's going on spiritually for them. We have to look at all of those components. And oftentimes we wanna look at one of those components and leave the others out. And when we do that, it's oftentimes really hard to get a good solution. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders. Dr. Jean Holthouse is the author of When Anxiety Roars. It's for parents, teachers, counselors, and youth leaders longing to understand and help the young people in their lives. This book unpacks the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual factors that influence anxiety in children and offers specific practical steps to take together to tame that anxiety. Jean Holthouse's book, When Anxiety Roars, Partnering with your child to tame the worry and anxiety. I can't think of a better time (laughs) for a book like this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a licensed clinical social worker, which basically means that I have a master's degree in counseling. Before that, I was a teacher for 10 years. I went into teaching thinking I was going to get to work with kids one at a time and 150 of them in a day was a lot. And so I decided to go back and get my degree to be able to do therapy so I could actually work with the kiddos that I thought I fit best with, which were the ones that were struggling. And so I've done therapy for 28 years and enjoy doing that. And I have two kids of my own. I have a 32 and a 34 year old. What brought you to write this particular book when anxiety roars? I think it's a great need for parents to have some resources For number one, knowing what's normal and what's abnormal, it's really hard to tell. Is this normal kiddo behavior, normal um, fears and anxiety, or is this crossed over that line and now it's something that's unhealthy? And if it is unhealthy, what do I do? And so I wanted to make something that was practical and integrated faith and could be used kind of as a guide for parents to kind of know some basic things they could do. It doesn't replace therapy, but hopefully gives some strategies that that parents could try out and adopt, see if they help. Why do you think anxiety is such a hot topic right now? Particularly in the last couple of years, there's been a huge increase because of COVID. And COVID was an external threat that our bodies had a natural reaction to. Anytime there's an external threat, our body experiences anxiety. Unfortunately, the external threat is supposed to go away. Like, you know, a car veers into your lane of traffic or you have a test that you're studying for, it gets over and the threat goes away. But we've been living in that state for two years now, which means we've been living anxious for two years. And it's been worse for kids because it's a threat you can't see. And so they don't know what will and won't hurt them. And they don't know, they don't have as many coping skills as we have. I think sometimes as parents, we're doing our best and we don't even realize we're adding to the anxiety. What kind of things are caregivers or parents doing that inadvertently they may be adding to the anxiety of the children? I think sometimes we don't recognize um, how to create environments for kids that limit some of those things. So like if the news is playing on that endless loop that it goes on in the background, we can assume that kids aren't paying attention to it, but all of those images, um, even the images of the war and things now, 
kids don't differentiate, our brains don't differentiate the difference. And so that it raises the anxiety level. And then as parents, oftentimes we're not managing our own anxiety. And because kids are intuitive, they intuit the anxiety and they don't know what it is, but they know, okay, my parents perceive danger. So I should be scared too. So I think those are two things that we can do that inadvertently, well-meaning, but contribute. When you mentioned war, that's been a hot topic for how to help kids work through that. Do you have any off the top of your head, any suggestions? I think one of the things you have to do is give them a place to focus. What can they actually control? So how can they, number one, focus on the helpers? And then how can they help and give them a sense of being empowered rather than being helpless? And then we can also look at, are we making sure that they're getting age appropriate information instead of information that maybe as adults is overwhelming to us? And certainly they don't have the capacity to cope with yet. And then they need to know they're in a safe place because they don't know it's over there. Where's over there if they're younger? And it does mean that I'm going to be bombed and kind of helping them know whether or not they're safe or not. Mm, Good words. Often kids hear things like you mentioned the TV going on the loop. We forget that kids really are listening. Knowing that gives us the opportunity to model some things too. So using like dinnertime conversations to hear where they're at and what things that they've been hearing about and help us to model ways to think about, ways to handle those things and having those conversations as a family, because they're not just hearing it from us. They're hearing it on the bus. They're hearing it in their social studies classes. And we don't know what they're taking and how they're making sense of it, unless we're having conversations with them, where we listen to how they're thinking about it instead of telling them how they should be thinking about it. That's such a great point, because there might be a child at school that's heard something or says something that's really not correct, and it puts fear into your child, but you don't know where it's coming from. You're not with them all day. I love that. I always said, get your kid in the car and drive if you want them to talk. Yeah, particularly when they don't know you can see them because you're watching them in the rearview mirror. Some kids are naturally more sensitive. We used to think that every kid came basically the same and their environment created it all. We now, as we discover more and more about the brain, we know that some brains are just wired up more sensitively than others. And that child is going to perceive and struggle more with managing their emotions and therefore could feel more anxiety than the kid that things more roll off their back and they're not as easily affected. And sometimes you can, like, I have one of each, they have the same parents and I don't know how that happened, but I've got one of each and they've been that way since they were born. And without knowing that, you can inadvertently treat them the same. And that sensitive kiddo then doesn't learn some of the skills that they need to manage anxiety because they're overwhelmed by the level of emotion they're experiencing. That's a good point. I saw this TikTok this morning. It's sort of one of those wait for it. This is just sweet little girl, probably not quite a little over one, not two. Her mom gave her like a sippy cup and then She smiled and she shoved it off of the the tray. (laughs) And mom said, no, very sternly. Mom says, wait for it. And this poor little girl, she wasn't pushing it off maliciously. And so when she heard that, no, it just broke her heart. And she just started to sob because she never meant to do anything wrong. And I thought it's so easy to just 
kind of think everyone's the same. And we can be invalidating of their emotions, particularly when their emotion is anxiety or something that we know isn't really justified. You know, the like, I'm scared of the dark, right? That feels like, oh, like, oh, come on. But to them, it's very, very real. And we can be invalidating of their emotion, which basically makes them feel bad for having the feeling instead of teaching them how to manage the feeling. Can you talk a little bit more about validation? Oh, it is very difficult to do, particularly when someone's feeling something different than you would feel in that situation. And validation isn't agreement. What it is, is it's putting yourself in that other person's shoes and saying, I get how you could feel that given the things that you know, given the things you're thinking, I get it that you're feeling that. And then you can go to something else. But until someone gets that, you get it. They're not ready to move. And you think about the last argument you had that was somebody that mattered to you in your life. Until you knew that they got your point, you weren't ready to think about anything else. And that's validation, that place where we know that they get what's going on for us. And it's really easy to invalidate kids because a lot of what they're feeling isn't rational. And we have adult brains. And we forget that they don't have little mini adult brains. They have kid brains that don't think like ours. I think that's the best explanation of validation I've ever heard. <laughs> but it's so true. Even as adults, when we don't feel like our partner or our boss or anybody really gets where we're at, we're not going to be able to hear what they have to say next. Exactly. Can you share a few of the red flags that parents can look for to kind of decide if the anxiety is healthy or unhealthy? You want to look at the fact that our bodies are, are built to have anxiety when we're in stressful or difficult situations. So we judge that line of where it's healthy versus where it's becoming unhealthy based upon if it's impairing their ability to live their life productively and in a normal fashion. So the kiddo that has difficulty with going to bed in the dark, if they can get past it and they can go to sleep every night, then we're probably not in the land of anything other than needing some reassurance and you know, some affirmation. But if they have to sleep with mom every night and they're seven, eight, nine years old, we've gotten to the place where they're not doing normal developmental things because of that anxiety. And that's a problem. And then what? That's the place of you can use kind of some of the skills that I describe in the book, but that's also a place where it's really, really important to get help because sometimes you need someone to help you know how to do this differently with them. because we're not all experts at everything. And that can be a place where a counselor can be incredibly beneficial. They can look at, okay, what's driving that behavior. They can help kind of unearth that and then give you some strategies. As a parent, you're going to need to be actively involved because you're with your child for the majority of the time. The therapist gets one hour a week and you're there the rest of the time. So they're going to give you some tools and say, try to do this. And they'll give you some ways to work with them. I think understanding, too, that asking for help is not defeat. Right. There's still some stigma around mental health. If your child woke up in the morning and they had a fever, you wouldn't feel like it was defeat to take them to the pediatrician. You'd be all about that because you would know, like, I can tell something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. And I don't know what to do about it. But somehow there's a stigma with mental health that, it, number one, if it's there, something horrible has happened. And we shouldn't, if we could just, you know, think differently or have different levels of faith, then it would just magically go away. And we have to recognize there are changes in the brain that happen when someone's anxious. And sometimes we need help. Number one, identifying what they are, identifying what's driving it and figuring out what to do different about it. Right. That it's not 
a declaration on your parenting. No. Oh my goodness. No. Yeah. Yeah. I always want people to know that because I feel like it's really easy for parents to kind of think they should know everything. Mm -hmm. And that's such a, a scary place to be. Yeah. I think it's important to remember confidence doesn't mean you know how to do it all. It means you know where to go to get the help to do the things you need to do. I'm confident to own a car, not because I know much about what to do under the hood, but because I know how to call the mechanic, right? And the same is true when we're raising our kids. We don't know, I don't know how to teach my kids algebra, but I know how to take them to school so the teacher can teach them that. That's good. In your book, you have helpful quizzes and suggestions to help kids, like help with routines and different things that would ease anxiety. Do you want to tell us about some of that? I think we have to remember that we're creatures of habit. And so when we don't provide structure and routine for children, it creates an, an unease, a dis-ease. They don't know what to expect next. It's why we do better when we have schedules, right? And on those days when we don't have schedules as, as parents, it's or when something messes with our schedule, it, we are a little off. So it can help the body to relax a little bit, to have a regular time when you go to bed, a regular time when you get up, a pattern for how your morning goes, um, a pattern for how your evening goes. It just helps them to know what's going to happen next. It, keep, it lets the body relax in a little bit and it makes their world predictable. It also increases their sense of self-efficacy, their competence, because they know what's happening next and they know what to do rather than feeling like they're at the mercy of their environment or the adults in their world and they can't predict and they don't know. That leaves them feeling incompetent and out of control, which would make any of us anxious. So those things can be helpful. I think we forget the necessity of sleep in particular and that those sleep routines. And anxious kids oftentimes struggle with sleep routines too. So it gets easy to just kind of let them go rather than establishing good bedtimes and good getting up times and those kind of ritual things. Um, that they can count on, even things like regular meal times where you sit at a table or you grab the meal from the, your favorite fast food store and you take that meal and sit at a table, but that you have a conversation together and you have a check-in with them and that they can count on a space where you're going to connect to them and see how they're doing. Those sorts of routines in a kiddo's life and in an adolescent's life. Adolescents will tell you they don't need those things, but they still need them too. They help to create a place where the body can feel safe and can relax. And we have to remember, we can't really say, do as I say, not as I do, because what that teaches them is, well, adults get to do these things. And so I really shouldn't need this other thing. Um, adults get to have no routines. Adults get to use screens all of the time. So I should get to do that when I'm an adult and I really shouldn't need this. And it's a little kid thing to need it. So we have to remember to do exactly those same things that we're asking them to do. It seems to me that when parents do too much, you were talking about the big E word, self-efficacy, mm -hmm. that that might cause anxiety because then the child doesn't feel like they know how to do anything. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. In the book, I call it helicopter parenting. And we do it out of fear. Um, and I actually, there's a checklist in the book to kind of identify, are you helicopter parenting? And, you know, you can get to the bottom of it. And most of us go, well, okay, so I'm on the list because we're so afraid our kids aren't going to be okay in the world that we start doing stuff for them 
Um, I actually tell a story in the book that I inadvertently helped write one of my daughter's college papers without realizing I was doing it because I was correcting her spelling and doing things like that for her that um, she could do for herself. But I was afraid she wasn't going to do well enough. And so I was over-functioning for her. And that gives kids really strong messages that they can't do it on their own. Um, unfortunately. So we want to we want to remember that childhood is a space where they get to fail and use that to learn. And you don't learn to walk without falling down a whole lot. But somewhere along the line, we get worried that if they fail, somehow it's going to mean they never succeed rather than that they're going to grow. So we have to manage our own anxiety so we don't overfunction for our kids. Which brings me to the next, it, this feels like this is the next thing, is labeling thoughts accurately is a technique you use to help with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think we have to identify that we have thoughts that are facts, we have thoughts that are feelings, and we have thoughts that are opinions. And we shouldn't treat them all the same. So a child with OCD takes a feeling of fear and creates a fact out of it. And so we have to help them check the facts and figure out, but first they have to be able to label them. And little kids in particular can't tell the difference between a feeling and a fact. A lot of us as adults can't tell the difference between feelings, opinions, and facts. So that helps us know how to treat them though, because I treat a fact differently than I treat an opinion. And a feeling is designed to give me information, but it's not a fact and it shouldn't make decisions necessarily. So what technique do you use to determine that? You just begin to practice looking at, okay, wait a minute, is this actually a fact? Is there evidence for it, right? Or is this a feeling? Um, and feelings have a purpose too. They're to give us information. So this is a, either a physical feeling or an emotional feeling, or is this an opinion I have about some things that happened? All of them have different reasons, and but you have to actually practice labeling them. So there are some exercises in the books to actually help children begin to take pictures and look at what do you suppose is happening in the picture? And then looking at what are the facts about the picture versus what are the opinions you formed about that picture versus what do you think was the feelings or what feelings did you have about the picture? And you can play it. There's some different games you can play and things to help kids learn that. That really inspires curiosity as well. I love that. Yes. In the back of your book, you have pages of feeling words. So how can mm -hmm. we use these? I have feeling words and I have feeling pictures too, because oftentimes we don't have good language to describe what's going on internally. And we don't know what we feel until we have words for it. And that starts when kids are little, when a kid is little and we say, oh, you look sad they learn to associate that feeling they're having internally with the word sad. That's how they learn what that feeling is, is by a, a parent or an adult in their world, identifying it and giving it a word. So we can, we oftentimes need words or pictures to help us know what, how to describe what's going on internally for us. And so with kids that have good language, they can use the list of words and kind of go, oh, I think this one fits. And it helps to give them to learn to give language to what's happening. With littler kids, we use the faces and which face describes you. And there, you can use emoji faces for that even. It's become a great a tool that we have because they don't necessarily have the same vocabulary, but they can identify the, they pretty accurately which face feels like they feel inside. And it's a way to help them give language to because that helps to get it outside of them or now we can work on it. But until we've got language for it, it's hard to work on. I think when we have parents that are maybe foster parents or adoptive parents, 
these kind of things come into play more because even though we don't always know where our kids have been and what they've been doing, we have a pretty good read on it. But when we get foster kids, which my grandkids are foster adopt, we don't know their story. This all seems so amazing to not only ask good questions, but teach them how to be curious Mm -hmm. about what they're feeling. Yeah. And actually to stand back and look at it rather than just feel like it's happening to you and have no control over it. We all need that skill as adults. We need it. So it's a great thing to practice together. A lot of mind reading and forecasting, all of those things create anxiety for us that if we can identify, wait, 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 that's not a fact. Then that actually takes the anxiety out and settles it back down again. But we all take the dots of little pieces of data, and we make a story about it. And depending upon our background, depends on the story we tell ourselves. Depending upon our fears, depends on the story we tell ourselves. And those things can really prompt anxiety. We are talking to Jean Holthouse about her book, When Anxiety Roars. Tell us where we can get this book. Sure. You can get it anywhere you can purchase books. And you can also go to bakerpublishinggroup.com and purchase it there. Is it in audiobook form? It is. It's on Audible. I know you talked a little bit about what brought you to this work. Since you have transitioned into counselor from teacher, what would you say have been your biggest, I don't know, surprises or um, things that have really made you happy? Oh, I love getting to see when the light bulb goes on, when, uh, when people come back and they say, it worked. Because oftentimes people come to counseling and I I warn them up front, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um, And so it's been tough. It's been hard when they begin to say, oh, I tried it and it worked this time. That is just the most amazing thing. And I love when we get to celebrate that someone is graduating. They no longer need to come see me. I always tell people my job is to work myself out of a job so that you possess those skills for yourself. Um, And over the years, I've done enough counseling now that sometimes I get to see the kiddos of kids that I originally saw and see how they're living their lives and how they're doing that successfully. And that's the greatest joy. Oftentimes we want simple answers to complex problems and anxiety is a complex problem that very rarely has one cause. And so it's going to take a complex series of things where you look at what's going on biologically for that child, where you look at what's going on psychologically for them, what's going on socially for them, what's going on spiritually for them. We have to look at all of those components. And oftentimes we want to look at one of those components and leave the others out. And when we do that, it's oftentimes really hard to get a good solution. Wow, that's powerful. Last week, I interviewed Holly DeBecker. She was talking about how social media affects our children. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? In my book, I actually reference social media as one of those things that we need to manage with children because exposure to that, um, the exposure to the blue light interferes with sleep patterns. And there's different ways that media, particular digital media, affects the brain and can affect anxiety. So we need to help kids develop limits around that. I mean, the American um, Academy of Pediatrics would say, we really need to be very, very careful, particularly with the younger children, how much media that they're experiencing because it affects the wiring in the brain as they're growing. Kids learn way faster with an interaction with an adult and they cue off of adults um, in terms of emotion. And so if they're having an interaction with a digital device, they don't have anything to cue off of that can calm them 
versus if they're having an interaction with an adult, that adult's calm demeanor helps to calm them. So even if you're discussing exactly the same thing that would be discussed digitally, the fact they're discussing it with you means that that emotional component is in play as well because they can cue off of your emotions. So I think sometimes we feel like it's out there, we can't control it. But as parents, we need to remember that we can set limits. Now we need to provide them with healthy alternatives and we don't have to make it all or nothing. We can find middle grounds in that, but there are wonderful ways to set limits in place. And it is so important all the way through the teen years. It creates a, a deep sense of missing out as well. Like I'm going to miss something. It keeps you, it actually works on some of the same principles that slot machines and casinos work on. So it intermittently re rewards you for continuing to stay on. Being aware enough to give them a healthy amount of screen time because it's not going away. In fact, it's all our future careers. So if you were to use the American Academy of Pediatrics, they would say under the age of two, the only screen time should be if you're like FaceTiming with family members so that you can like that you couldn't interact with in another way. And then between two and five or six, You'd want to limit it to no more than an hour a day, and you want to make sure it's high quality programming, and you want to watch it with them, and you want to interact with them while you're watching it with them. And then between that five or six and teenage years, you're teaching them how to manage that time. So um, you might want to set a time limit mutually, like let's say you're going to have two hours of digital media um, a day, and you can develop even a token sort of system where like maybe you give them um, chips for that are each worth 10 minutes and they can cash them in. But when the chips are gone, their time is gone. So you're teaching them to kind of manage that and that it has to come to an end. And even with adolescents, having like a routine time at night when all screens go on the counter and they're plugged in. Um, and I all, I all the time have parents and teens that tell me, but I need it for my alarm. And I will tell them at your favorite store, there's this thing that plugs into the wall and it's called an alarm clock. Put the, put the devices on the counter about two hours before you want to go to bed, because it's going to take that long for your brain to wind down, keep them interacting out in public places. So you can see where they're going on digital media. It's okay to say no screens in bedrooms because it, it makes them think about that mom or dad could walk by as they're making decisions about what they're going to, and they don't possess the same degree of impulse control that a fully developed adult does. So having that kind of cue can be really helpful. Jean Holthouse, When Anxiety Roars. Partnering with your child to tame worry and anxiety. And it's available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference.